This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Thing comes from the Gospel according to John. It is found on page 80 of the New Testament of your Pew Bible. We will begin with verse 35. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Oh, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we are. We're standing somewhere in life in positions of influence or positions of need and we are asking that we would see you so that we may follow and have this newness of life we ask it in jesus name amen we collectively are bombarded with words it is said that the average American witnesses between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements on any given day. I personally witnessed 3,000 of them yesterday. I was driving south on I-95 to visit a church member in a rehab hospital. I saw a lot of ads. I arrived late in the afternoon and walked into a massive brick building and had a three-story atrium in the center. Rather Rather than any sort of green foliage or lovely water feature, there was on the wall a home theater size television blasting. And it was a home renovation show echoing off the walls now in the center of the atrium were four empty chairs facing each other almost inviting someone to sit and have a conversation crazy i couldn't even hear my own thoughts 
let alone hear someone else. Our lives are bombarded with words. But how many of these words are saying what we most need to hear? In his commentary on the book of Psalms, Eugene Peterson offers three categories in which words are, normal, words are normally used. He calls them the primary ways, language one, two, and three. Language one, it's the language of relationship. Think about it. We first learn words because we are in so much need. The first sound out of our mouth is a cry. And every inarticulate gurgle or wail is trying to communicate what we need. We need food. We need comfort. We need love. We, we need a change of diapers. Language one is the sounds that pass between parents and infants. La, 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 la. Or peekaboo. Or the words exchanged between those who love one another. Precious or sorry. It's the cornerstone of language one to have names and pet names. Mama, Dada, Mimi, Papa, Sweetheart, Honey. It conveys personhood, value, and identity. And it gives to us the experience of personal love that's based on trust. It's trust and love that are the foundations of human life. And without trust and love, we cannot exist. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus uses language one. But let's look briefly at the other two. Language two is when we use words to convey information, knowledge. Don't touch that, it's hot. Or... Uh, facts like black holes and physics or conundrum over Prince Harry and Meghan. It's information, data, facts. Language three is when we use words to influence people. We take information and we use it to try to change someone's behavior or their thinking. Every imperative is language three. Stop that. Do this. It is used to persuade others. Marketing, politicking, coaching. Language three, they depend on words to change people's minds and behavior. Now, let's say we had a recording of ourselves. Which type of speech do you use? Language one, two, or three. Language one, building love through per language one, building love through personal relationship. Or using words that are to inform. Or words that are used to persuade. In John 1, I'd like us to pay close attention to how Jesus says a response to those who are looking for him. All right, we have two men. They're on a quest for something more. Jesus asks them a question and extends an invitation. 
And that encounter changes their lives. Let's look at this. Verses 35 and 36. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he watched Jesus walk by. He exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The writer of the gospel is showing him himself to be an eyewitness. The fact that he mentions standing. He's later going to say 4 p.m. in the afternoon. 4 p.m. is the time that men finished their work for the day. What we have here is discretionary time. It's when a day's work is done. Now, I am guessing as I look around that many of you are familiar with the TV show that took place in the 80s and early 90s, Cheers. Cheers was discretionary time, after work, when people gathered at a bar in Boston in order to have a home away from home where everyone knew your name. These men are using their discretionary time to be disciples. That is... That is, they're apprentices. They're disciplined in learning. But they're disciples of John the Baptist. Now, if you and I were there at that moment, we would have some reaction to John. He dressed in the outfit of Elijah. This was not normal clothing. It was camel's hair, a hide that he tied with a leather belt, and he ate locusts and honey. He was acting the role of the prophet Elijah. There had been no prophet, no voice from God to the people of Israel for 400 years. Silence. And then John is looking like Elijah, and he says he's preparing the way for the Messiah. So now we have two men after work, using their discretionary time to hang out with John the Baptist, who says, I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. This shows that these men are on a quest for something more. Something more. Now, they all had their religion. They all had work. They had their own lives to lead. But they are not satisfied. They're looking for something more. The day prior, we learned that Jesus has walked toward John, and he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the next day. John again is standing, looking, and he sees Jesus walk by and makes the same declaration. This time, the two men got it. They understood what he meant. Here is the man. Go for it. They were looking. They were looking for more. Now, how do we know? Because of how they respond. They leave John and they follow Jesus. In his book, The $64 Tomato, subtitle, How One Man Nearly Lost His Sanity, Spent a Fortune, and Endured an Existential Crisis in the Quest for the Perfect Garden, William... Alexander asks this question, quote, If you were doomed to live the life 
the same lie over and over again for eternity? Would you choose the life you are living now? The question, he writes, is interesting enough, but the point of asking it is really the unspoken, potentially devastating follow-up question. That is, if the answer is no, then why are you living the life you're living now? Stop making excuses and do something about it. End quote. Two men do something about it. John pointed to Jesus and they followed him. What is your response? Do you ever feel like something is missing? The biblical story is a grand narrative of good creation, of a devastating fall because of disobedience, of a God who's been in a pursuit and offering reconciliation, and in the end, receives. And we are together with God for those who respond. Ding. He said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jesus is walking by those who are looking to meet him. Do you know the very familiar verse where in Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or more people are gathered in my name, you know, Christian fellowship is often seen as where two or more cookies are gathered in the fellowship hall. But in, if you literally translate that, it is where two or three are turned toward me. There I am in the midst of them. He's saying if there are two or more who have gathered to turn and find me, I will be in their midst. I will walk by. I grew up um, in many places, locations, but as a teenager, I was in Dallas, Texas. And it was during that time that I personally experienced, for the first time, the risen Lord. It was as if a black and white world turned to color. It was as if my world expanded. It's as if I was starving for scripture and to pray and to be with other Christians. At that time, there was a movement called a lay renewal movement, and I was on the team of teenagers. And I went to West Texas, and there met my first boyfriend, Boogie Webb. But in that time, for five days, in homes, having parties, giving witness, sharing our testimony, praying with, do you know what happened? Jesus showed up. And people came into a new relationship with him. It was later on when I was nursing, I was invited to the Great Banquet. It's a three-day retreat. And it was there that I experienced again a fresh encounter with the living Lord. It was later as a pastor that I was on staff of that same retreat experience. 
and found person after person weeping with joy that they were experiencing and seeing Christ. That same invitation, by the way, extends to all of you, men and women, for the great banquet retreat in March. Are you on a quest for something more and ready to respond? <laughs> Not everyone is. In the Jewish magazine Moment, a number of Jewish leaders were asked this question. What does the concept of the Messiah mean today? The CEO of the Jewish World Service said, quote, the Messiah does not connote some entity or deity or event that will suddenly arrive and change the circumstances in our lives. That's a notion of childhood wish fulfillment. A sociology professor said, well, for most Jews, the messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda. They don't see the history as moving toward that day. We do not need to be aligned with any particular religion in order to sit, order to sit with scoffers who say the world is not going to change and my life is not going to change. I've just got to endure it. Two men left where they were and they followed Jesus. And you can too. What we see is that Jesus extended, asked them a question and extended an invitation. He turned and saw them following and said, what are you looking for? In the gospel, these are the very first words of Jesus. The very first thing he says, what are you looking for? The most profound question a person can ask. It sounds so much like the Bible's first question. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had disobeyed and they realized that they were naked, they had disobeyed, Eve had disobeyed and they realized that they were naked, they had disobeyed, they hid. And they heard the sound or the voice of the Lord God moving in the garden. And they stayed away. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? Not, why did you do it? Or didn't I tell you not to? This is the sound of grace. Where are you? What are you looking for? It's a God himself who's asking. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis asks us to look into our own hearts and to see if we ourselves cannot say that we're looking for something that none of us has ever had. He writes, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise when we first fall in love or we think of visiting a foreign country or taking up some subject to learn. Exciting. And there we almost have it, but it fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife. Hotels and scenery may be excellent. Chemistry may be an interesting job, but something has evaded us. What are you looking for? It is what Jesus asks 
And he wants us to name it. It's language one. The answer that the two men give show either that they don't know or they're too shy to ask. Where are you you staying? It's like a, a child's incoherent response. But Jesus understands their longing and he understands ours. Language one. What are you looking for? Relational, personal way to convey love that builds trust. So Jesus says, verse 39, come and see. And he extends the invitation. He wasn't just saying, come and see where I'm lodging. He's he's giving them an invitation to stay and visit him. How many can you sleep in your own home? Is it a futon that you pull out, a rollaway? Is it an air mattress where Jesus put the men up for the night? But they stayed with him that night. They arrived at 4 o'clock and they remained with him. What did they talk about? What would it be like to have a meal with Jesus? What would he ask? You would like to know, wouldn't you? What did it feel like? What did they say in response to his questions? When I think about conversations that have made them difference in my life. I can remember the words of only a few of them. But I can remember the people that I was having the conversation with. It was who they were that made such a difference in my life. Each time language one words are used, we receive an identity that's more than information. It builds trust That's much more than influence. Whatever was shared changed their lives. Verses 40 and 41. One of them who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. This suggests that just getting together with Jesus and talking with him is enough to make a person his committed disciple. And when Andrew came out the next morning, the first thing he wanted to do was share, we've found the Messiah. He shared it with his brother. And Jesus met Simon, and he said, your name, which means fluttering dove, is going to be changed to Peter, Petros, rock. I'm changing your life. I'm changing your life. This is the sacred chain. This is what happens. I don't know who pointed Jesus out to you. I don't know who you are pointing Jesus out to others. But it begins with a conversation that begets a conversation that begets a conversation that ends with changed lives. I end with a story that Richard Stearns, former president of World Vision, shares. He calls it the domino theory of spiritual impact. When a domino falls, it starts a chain reaction. Stearns tells the story of Robert Wilder in the 1880s. He signed a pledge to become a missionary, but he was too frail to fulfill his pledge. So he began to say, I'm one domino 
fell in that pledge. While he was in Chicago, Robert spoke to an audience that included Samuel Moffat. Samuel signed the pledge to become a missionary, and within two years he was in Korea. Another domino fell. Years later, Samuel shared the story of Jesus and Scripture with a man who was becoming disillusioned with Taoist practice named Kiel Sun Chu. He trusted in Christ, and another domino fell. In 1907, Kiel was one of the leaders of the Pyongyang, North Korea, revival. Spontaneous prayer and conversion came forth as people were praying and confessing as a church. Thousands of dominoes fell. The church in Korea now numbers, now numbers about 15 million. It sends more missionaries throughout the world other than the United States. Millions of dominoes continue to fall. Stern concludes, we are all like dominoes. In a chain reaction set off by Jesus 2,000 years ago, it starts with just one seemingly insignificant domino. One seemingly insignificant conversation can make all the difference in the world. Therefore, Jesus asks us today, what are you looking for? Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.